Gentlemen, how are you? Good. Good, good. All things considered. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'm doing Keith, good, man. We are so glad to have you on today. Uh, very happy to be here. So for those who don't know you, this is uh, Keith Martin-Smith, our very, very good friend. Um, man, we go back like hmm. forever. 2005, 2006. Yeah, the halcyon days of Integral Institute. Yep. Um, so it's super awesome to have you here. And for those who don't know, Keith is... Um, Jeez, how do I even describe how you move through the world, man? Keith is just a <laughs> force of nature uh, who is just one of the, 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 the kindest, wisest, and um, uh, just one of the most rad people I know. And I'm just uh, seriously happy to have you on with us today, brother. Thank you, brother. It's yeah, very man. good to be here. Honored to be here. And then, of course, my homie, Ryan Oki. Hello. Again. Again. For bonus. Bonus time. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to do a, a special episode. You know, it's funny. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Preet Bharara's podcast. And he just sent out uh, an email today that was basically saying, hey, guys, just so you know, it's okay to not talk about Corona for 24 hours a day, seven days yeah. a day. Like, it's okay I mean, it's refreshing. Talk, you know, it's okay to talk about other things. Um, so even though we got that counsel from Preet Bharara, today we're here to talk about Corona <laughs> and the quarantine because um, – yeah. You know, obviously this is hot right now and uh, particularly because, you know, I think we're still, um, we're still really bracing for the impact here, right? I mean, we've been, you know, I don't know about you guys, we have been quarantined for about two or three weeks now. Um, we've been pretty cautious about it, adding new layers in, like now we are cleaning all and disinfecting all of our groceries before they come in because we don't know exactly how long these things last on surfaces and, and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're two or three weeks into this game and um, it seems like this is only just starting. So um, at minimum, this is going to go until April 30th. Uh, my sense is there's a good chance it's going to go a bit longer than that, um, that we're going to be dealing with this quarantine for a while now. Um, and, you know, I think that that brings, um, well, it brings a lot. That brings a lot of uh, pain and it brings a lot of opportunity, I think, uh, mm -hmm. to really sort of re-engage our practices, to re-engage um, our work in the world, and to really kind of shore up. You know, it's also a nice opportunity for a lot of us, particularly men, who get to spend a little bit more time with their families. Um, you know, a lot of men are forced to, as Warren Farrell says, to, to show love for their family by spending time away from their family. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that this is a really, really interesting situation we're in right now because it's um you know as we've talked about in previous shows it's one of the first real global events that has made such an impact on our personal lives like on a behavioral level right we're all living our lives differently now than we were just one month ago mm -hmm. because of this pandemic and i think with that sort of um transition with that sort of inflection point there's just huge opportunity here um, for, for growth and for transformation, as well as for some, you know, much needed, I think, self-care that a lot of us have been neglecting for, I don't know, a decade or six. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what we're here to talk about, really. It's, you know, we're titling the show Inhabit Your Quarantine, um, which is, you know, sounds kind of funny, but um, I think that's, that's, that's kind of why we're convening today, is to figure out how do we, how do we make the most of this, and, uh, you know, how do we allow this to... Um, to help us show up more fully in all the ways that the world is asking for us to show up. So what do you think of that theme, Ryan? I like it. Yeah. Um, we, uh, over at Buddhist Geeks, we just started a 
meditation training uh, this week called Responsive Meditation. And I led my first group yesterday. And one of the things that came up for me recently is that there's obviously this whole time period is there's a lot of tragedy to it, right? A lot of suffering in so many different forms, uncertainty. And there's something about the weight of it and the intensity of it that also cuts through a lot for me to where it actually makes it easier to drop in and inhabit what's important and to respond the ways that maybe I and we would hope to have done prior to the crisis, but because we can maintain a sort of equilibrium in life that we end up usually trying to search out opportunities like how can I drop into presence or how can I heal my shadows? We try to do that work, but now it just busts us right wide open. And to mm -hmm. me, there's an opportunity in there. It, it's so, it's like effortless in a certain way to like crack us open like that and to help us pay attention. And I've noticed also a lot of um, connection and gratitude. I think, I can't remember what you said, uh, more space. More space, it? less separation has been. Yeah, my yeah, that, that was a good phrase because that's something I pointed out yesterday in my talk was that we're all isolating and yet somehow it feels like we're more connected. Yeah. which is ironic. And yeah, I think we're starting to feel that contrast and just how much we were actually lacking or, or at least taking for granted that yeah, sort of everyday I agree. embodied connection that we have with each other. And the comparison that's been brought up a lot is that, well, we haven't seen a global event like this since World War II. That's an example. And what comes up with that, I would still say like, I will think I'd rather be here than World War II time period, but mm -hmm. that's, I think oh, yeah. that's true. The, the comparison's true. Um, but also, so that points to the suffering part but I think it also points to the love part, the connection part, that we haven't had that opportunity either to connect with each other in, in the ways that we are now. Yeah. And so I think we're all just naturally, I don't think I'm, I'm saying something that like I need to convince anybody of. I think we're just noticing that from people singing in the balconies and from being generous to each other. Like it's, it's pretty profound in all directions. So yeah, um, so yeah I... I think like inhabit your quarantine could also be a, just another rephrase of uh, stay home. But uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there's a question of like, what, yeah, what, what am I to do with this? You know, what, yeah. what are we to do with this? And to, to sit with that question consciously. And it sounds like that's kind of what we're exploring today of like, how do we, how do we navigate this? How do we respond to it? Yeah. It's well said just because we're quarantined doesn't mean we need to be uh, diminished. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, something that somebody pointed out to me in the group was that, and I already know this, but it's really interesting. Like when the, like say the three of us come together so far, we're maintaining a relatively together life, right? We still, we have our shelter so far. We have our health. Um, we're able to sit here and do this, <laughs> but there's some people who their life is a wreck, yep. you know what I mean? And, and they don't have any opportunity to do anything that we're all talking about. So that doesn't negate what we're going to talk about. And because there's a lot of people in the same position where, yeah, we're quarantined, there's a lot of uncertainty, but we have the opportunity to practice or the opportunity to take a step back. But some people don't have that opportunity. So I just want to bookmark that, yeah. that like to recognize that. No, it's, I mean, I, I think practice is always a great luxury. So yeah. anytime, and you can take that a number of ways. There's certainly financial and cultural ways that enable that, that privilege to happen. Yeah. Um, but it's also it can also be a mindset and a willingness too. I, I think mm. it's a both, it's a both end. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And you know, I think another point I want to make to people is that, um, you know, there are all sorts of different ways of um, coping with something like this. You know, I think what we're dealing with right now is we are just right on the precipices of a genuine collective trauma. 
and we're that I think that trauma is just beginning to seep in. And I'm going to actually be talking with um, Dr. Keith Witt this weekend about what exactly collective trauma is and how it's more than just sort of the sum aggregate of individual traumas. There is a trauma. There's a trauma within us that you know we can experience for ourselves, but there's a trauma between us as well. Well, for sure. And um, yeah. and I think all of us are going to find different ways of of sort of coping and uh, of managing and finding our way through that trauma. So it's another thing I just want to say is that, you know, we can talk about all sorts of different practices today um, in various categories and sort of um, how uh, important an ILP is right now and how helpful it can be. But I also would just want to keep in mind, this doesn't have to be, you know, we're not just talking about ascending practices here. Right. We're not just saying like sit on a cushion for six hours and stare at a blank. For sure, for sure, for sure. You know? Yeah. And, I mean, and yeah, and that cultural trauma will have repercussions well, you know, well beyond and months and years beyond this that will be manifesting in culture in ways that we can't possibly see right now. Oh, yeah. Amen. And, and, and and I can give you like one interesting example. If you look historically at Irish immigrants that came to America and Italian immigrants that came to America, both Irish Catholic, they had the exact same demographics as far as poverty, family structure, religious structure. They came over and worked the same sorts of jobs, same education levels. Yet when you went into an Italian-American family's home, alcohol was used very sparingly. And when you went into an Irish-American family's home, alcoholism was rampant and a problem. And what's the difference between Italian culture and Irish culture? Well, the Irish culture has massive cultural trauma mm -hmm. that's run through it for hundreds of years. So their relationship mm -hmm. to trauma and change is very different than the Italians was. And so we'll be living in some version of that of that repercussion culturally, like I said, that we, we can't see it. Mm. Yeah. And you know, uh, this is a, a different perspective, but maybe like looking at it a little differently, I suppose. But uh, in terms of collective trauma, part of me feels like we've already been in collective trauma and this has just pushed us over the edge for things that have been bubbling. For example, a broken health healthcare system, massive in incoming inequality. We've been talking about all these things that are already here. And so part of it feels like rather than just beginning, there's some part of me that's like, finally, we're pushing, we're going to like, things are cracking open enough that we maybe have a chance to actually deal with them and actually transform them. Um, and I think I mentioned in the show before, um, generational theory from Strauss Howe, and there's a yep. book, yeah, the fourth turning and the four turnings there are uh, for cultural shifts and evolution is high awakening, unraveling and crisis. And from what it seems like we're at that crisis period. And what um, they say is that there is a rock bottom. And from there, you start to see shifts towards um, a new stability, a new way of being, for example, like uh, the new deal was that kind of a response. So there's part of me too, that's like, wow, this is like, I mean, we don't know what the economy is going to be like, for example, it's like, what the hell is this going to look like? And how much, how much worse is it going to get for us to unravel and deal with that? At the same time, I feel like every, t every day is a step towards that new, that new way of being. Yeah. Um, and and there's, a, there's such a fundamental difference here compared to the, the Second World War, the Great Depression, which is that we are connected to other cultures electronically yes. in ways we weren't yes. and in real time. So if mm. we go, if the United States goes through a major economic depression, well, I can tell you that Spain and France yes. and the UK and Russia and everyone else is going to go there with us. And that right. alone is going to make it a different kind of experience for the world than the depression ever was. Mm. I, I agree. And there's even something now, and I always want to be very nuanced with all this because it's like we are in a 
period of deep suffering. There's no way around that. And at the same time, what if I compare, if I read, I've been reading and I, uh, all the histories and Keith, it sounds like you're very much up on that. So I'm so glad you're here to like detail out some of those historical events. But I, I would say, I, I'm so glad I'm not in those. Like I would rather be in this right now than totally. the Great Depression. And that doesn't mean that this won't qualify as the depression. It's just that like, you know, the arc of humanity and I can't remember who the researchers on. Like if you look at the arc of humanity from hundreds of years, it's like we have less murder in the world overall. Mm -hmm. It's just flat out. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's Pinker, Stephen Pinker did that. Uh, like, yeah. Like, yeah, like the comprehensive and, chart moving towards from worse to better. <laughs> exactly. That seems to be true. And Jeremy Rifkin point makes a point that, uh, I don't know if this is just a ballpark number, but 50% of humanity is clearly so much better off than they were a generation ago. But 50% of humanity might actually be um, no better off or maybe even a little worse than their ancestors were. So there's a little bit of discrepancy there, but it seems like overall, I guess this is pointing to some aspect of hope, not naive hope, but potential, the potential that lies in the situation or maybe beyond it that maybe we can navigate this differently because i think it's a thing we point to the past which we should do we should point to the spanish flu pandemic we should point to world war ii the great depression all these things to see what did we fuck up in the past and how can we not do that now but also to note like he said we're a different context a globally interconnected world the amount of information that we have access to in this crisis is mind-boggling like we have more information at our tips than like the average probably scientist had uh, in 1918, right? Like how many graphs do we have? Yeah, <laughs> a little too much information someone could actually- I would agree, I would, I would actually agree with that. I've been thinking we're in the hyper aware age. That's been the phrase yeah. that's been coming up to me. Where I'm like, maybe we need to step back yeah, in terms and, of and citizens. If, and, Go ahead. Yeah, and I think the danger of having so much information to, to Corey's point is that, is that with everything that we know about cognitive biasing and and our own incredibly subjective, the, the subjective ways that we actually gather and process information that if I mm. think the world is really, really shitty and terrible, I will find all the data that's legitimate and defendable that will prop up my biases, right? So, so it, that's the double-edged sword of modernity, I think, or post-modernity is. really is that, is that for any study that you give me, I can give you a different study that's right that's yeah. gonna, so, so we have to sort yes. of pop out of the empirical lens and come above it into a meta lens where we can actually begin to see broader patterns and yeah, and have the humility to realize that we're all fucking biased as hell and, and to know that going into looking at that and going into this conversation knowing i have strong biases around how i see the world yeah. knowing that and holding that in a way that allows me to be a little more open to what you guys might say that might challenge what i think mm. yeah yeah, yeah, and the the level of literacy that we have to have now is is immense. Like this level of literacy in terms of understanding data would have been only taught at a graduate level yeah. in yeah. in the past. Like you would have had a statistics course yeah. to just start scratching the surface. But yeah. yet now, there's no way around it. We have access to the data, but yet not necessarily the training to know how to interpret it. And even people who deal with statistical analysis can note the various ways that you can interpret data and information and, and the response that comes out of it. So that adds to the challenge. And because we don't have a lot of faith and confidence in our authoritative structures and systems, that makes it even more difficult because normally, or normally in the past, I would have just said, well, they'll figure it out. Right. The experts. Right, right. right. <laughs> well, the, we're used to, we're used the to having- The president will lead in this. Yeah, exactly. And we're used to having, you know, I think what, this has been sort of a theme that we've been repeating in a lot of these shows lately, but this is sort of what happens when you have an abundance of, of information available to you 
on a platform that does not itself have any built-in enfoldment mechanism whatsoever. Mm. And what I mean by that is some way of taking all of these truths and assembling them in such a way, okay, well, this is true and this is true, but you know what, this uh, coronavi- corona actually is a virus and it's not coming from 5G uh, cell towers, for example. Right. I mean, right. you know, right. the, the way it is right now on our social media platforms, which is where 90% of us get our news, um, it's where we discuss our news, it's where all of our communities are hosted uh, and whatnot, there's no opportunity for enfoldment the way, the way there was in the old media, even with, mm. you know, cable mm. news and things like that, but especially with print media. They picked, someone picked the stories that you got to watch. That's right. Yeah. Happened. That's right. Yeah. And now it's just like, well, we're just going to dump raw data onto the internet. And oh, it's a fire it. hose. Yeah. Uh, to, to <laughs> all of this. And Ryan, you may, yeah, and the da- oh, go ahead, Keith. I was just going to say that the data is confusing right now. Like I was looking in the New York times yesterday on the front page, there are per hundred thousand people in New York city. There are, it's 500, 457 people per hundred thousand that are infected in San Francisco. It's 31 people per hundred thousand. Now, you, you know what the, you know what the why? Nobody fucking knows. Right. Like, yeah. there are theories that like, well, maybe because they shut San Francisco down sooner, or maybe because it's bigger, or maybe it's because it's salt air, like, but nobody knows. So what does that right. do? That feeds the human tendency to want to understand. And then you've yeah. got, well, 5G towers, and you've got bad conspiracy theories, and, and uh, people are just for really yeah, being like, well, we don't really understand how this virus works yet. So yeah. yeah, and another example of that. So I know you might have seen the article, I think it was on Unheard, uh, but uh, I'm talking about Sweden and what Sweden's doing. Sweden is taking super lax uh, methods. Very, not what, doing it. would be like an American approach back in yeah, the day. Yeah, back in the day. And so what'll be really interesting is like nobody 100% knows, you know, right. and there's, uh, but after, you know, a year from now, we will have those comparisons to look at, but it is a good point to say like every, we got to do something and that's true. We got to have a response. We got to think through this. We can't just be like, well, I don't know. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, the best, best information you have. Yeah. Yeah. Best information you have at the same time. Yeah. That's been coming more apparent to me and especially comparing to 2009, this is something I've been talking about privately with the, the H1N1. I, I, I talked to a few friends and I'm like, I don't remember, like if you had quizzed me before the coronavirus, I wouldn't have been able to tell you exactly what year it was. And I was no, an totally. older living in a small apartment with two other people and I don't remember nothing. And it affected no. 10 to 20% of the world population. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and it was an official pandemic. So it was really interesting that even though we had Twitter and things at that time, um, there's a difference in like how we're talking about it. Clearly there's a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Two thousand nine, we were not on. We were all on Facebook, but we were. Let's be honest, we were all on it in a really different way. Yeah, yeah, very different. Nope. Right. No, that's right. We hadn't hit the tipping point where Facebook was the primary. Uh, and you weren't on it seven times a day because there wasn't that much happening there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think Twitter was like what two, three years old max. Yeah. yeah. People were still making the transition from MySpace. <laughs> oh my gosh! Totally, yeah. absolutely. And things like Zod. Yep. Hey, I met my wife on MySpace. MySpace worked for me. That's awesome. Ryan, you, uh, you also mentioned something um, that I wanted to kind of circle back to, which was uh, generational theory. Yeah. Um, now, first off, I, I want you to repeat, what were those major phases that you shared? Yeah, I highly recommend this. I find it really, really fascinating. And I would say that if you're looking for me, looking for some understanding, I wouldn't say certainty, but some like comfort in like saying, where are we going? This for me did it. Um, and so, and it seems to map out. They're like, it's played out over multiple generations. So it's a high- awakening, unraveling, and crisis. 
So that's, that's interesting because it seems to um, sort of correlate with two things, um, with uh, A, how spiral dynamics describes individual development, which is something we talked about with Rob um, last Monday, um, where you have like, you know, the alpha and the gamma trap and the delta surge and all that. Um, yeah. And it also reminds me of, I'll just quickly share this visual, um, one of Rob's visuals from his presentation on Monday, which we just released on Integral Life um, today for free. So if you guys missed that, you can go check it cool. out. Um, but here's sort of his uh, basic growth cycle of, yeah. you know, and this is really uh, looking at social holons. So I think it's got a lot in common with uh, the phases that you just mentioned from that, that does look very similar. Yeah. But the other mm -hmm. thing, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to convene with the two of you today is because we are all Gen X. Right. All three of us are, are Gen X. Maybe borderline. I, I, I will consider myself uh, borderline or like bilingual. Like my childhood feels Gen X, but my adulthood feels more millennial. Yeah. So <laughs> that, they call Xennials. For, for oh, okay. That, that would probably fit for me. I call it the video game generation or the Atari generation. Yeah. But I think, I think Keith wins the most Gen X out of the three of us though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Keith, he, I was born he, in 70, late 72. Oh, uh, yep, yeah. Okay. Yep. He rocked that New York Times paper forever. I think he finally gave up your, your morning paper. <laughs> I did. I, I finally gave it up in 2000. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. 2014. My morning paper. Yep. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. a great lady. I'm but, go back. No, it's kind of cool because, you know, Gen X forever has just been totally neglected by uh, mainstream media. You know, it's always the damn boomers and the damn millennials and just and they're uh, arguing with each other which i love you know yeah, just exactly kind of they, they're going after each other just, yeah, just us actually just kind of keep our heads down because that's what we are used to doing is just keeping our heads down oh we have an aids crisis just keep your heads down oh, we're having a divorce we're having a divorce pandemic oh just stay single down. Yeah. you know i mean yeah. this is our moment we've been like our childhood prepared us uh, for this, I mean, the, the generation of latchkey kids is going to yeah. be more capable of enduring a quarantine than anyone else. And meanwhile, yeah, yeah it's the, the, the boomers and the Zoomers who are the ones who don't seem to be taking this uh, pandemic as seriously. What is the hashtag that the millennials are throwing out? Is it bo boomer remover? Is that the, the boomer remover? Oh, my God. <laughs> which, which kills me, you know, because it's, it's like... It's well, and, and like, you know, in the early days when there was just so much um, sort of head in the sand denial about, you know, the, the sort of the gravity of this pandemic, you know, I'm just waving my hands. I'm like, guys, especially you in the integral community, do you realize that Ken Wilber himself is like on the front lines here? I mean, yeah. he's the first guy that's going to get taken out by this. Right, right. You know, and what I met, and I noticed that mm -hmm. when I mentioned that to someone who's sort of been riding that line of denial, they just, they, they kind of sober up for a moment. They're like, oh, this actually can't, you know, because it's one of those things where it's like it's abstract until it affects me, right? Until it actually lands in my backyard. This is just, it's someone mm -hmm. else's problem. Um, and I think we're... And, and, and in defense of people, I would say understandably, because to Ryan's point, you know, we've had a couple of major uh, viral things that have blown up across the world and they have had impact in places. But, you know, we sort of saw it go across the news ticker a little bit, but there was no discernible impact in anyone. Yeah, it, it blows like, my mind. That blows my mind. And actually, know. I would say that I would have preferred more collective awareness in 2009, like comparatively. And, um, but it is interesting that like, yeah. And, and if you think about it, and Corey, I know like uh, with your girl and what you all think about in totally. terms of, of viruses, you all have a much bigger awareness no matter what's going on. Totally. And so like for me, like I remember being in Boulder when I, when I was there and 
a younger population and just the utter disregard that people would have being nasty sick, like peak sick days, and they're in a coffee shop, just click clacking away on a laptop and that lack, that kind of, you know, mindlessness. So it's very interesting that like, I think some of that just permeates our culture where it's just like, okay, pandemic now, I'm hoping some of these things will continue like afterwards. That's like some yeah. of this mindfulness and measures will just be part of our culture. But I get it because yeah, we didn't hardly pay attention in 2009 when we had an actual pandemic and right. we, uh, it was so far, we'll find out when all things are said and done, like the comparison of like how deadly the two were, the last one seemed less deadly so far. And, but, but also the leadership around it, right? I mean, that's it, the leadership was very different. Yeah. Like the response. Yeah. We had a pandemic team. Yeah. Yeah. We had some things in place to, to respond. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, Corey too, one thing I wanted to point people to now, I'm not versed in this, but something that might be interesting with in terms of like Gen X and millennials and uh, Gen Z, along with that generational theory, they have archetypes that emerge depending on where you're at in your generational cycle, whether you're a kid in the pandemic or whether you're our age in the pandemic, mm. it changes what kind of archetype you have in your response to that in response to life in general. And they call it the prophet, nomad, hero, and artist. And there's a good video on it where they'll explain like, which one will you most likely be depending on where you're at right now? You know, where will the six-year-olds be like being kids of people like us living as adults in the midst of a pandemic, right? That's fascinating. Yeah, I found, I need to go back and look at it, but um, it's really, I think it, it adds more dimensions to the whole um, uh, typical generational right. typology. Yeah. Well, I think it's useful because it's, it's a useful, um, it's a cultural typology is what it is, it's a social typology. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, and it's simply taking into account, you know, it's funny because when I talk about generational theory with, with people, some people get really excited about it and other people just kind of like, you can't lump me in with everyone else. My, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, well, to us, I mean, I get it. I understand what you're saying. And it's just undeniable that like different generations, different cohorts of different generations uh, come of age at different times in a set of different circumstances and life conditions. Yeah. And reference I think this kind of theory points to that a little more because it's something incredibly tangible, you know, whether it's a world war, Vietnam, um, you, uh, a pandemic, like these things are, I feel like you can tie even more to why somebody is how their disposition is. So for example, who knows how long it's going to take for us to reach another level of reorganization, but we ain't, we're not going to forget it. So if it takes us another five years or 10 years, we will remember this in our bones for the rest of our life. And that's going to affect us. And we're going to talk that way. And, and the younger generation are going to hear us talk that way. And they're going to, why are you talking that way? Because we lived through that. Right. <laughs> well, it's the, right, it's, the whole, it's the whole depressionary thing, right? Those yeah. of us that, had grand, that remember grandparents that lived through the depression, yep. they almost to a person had really funny practices around money. Like they didn't yes. put their money in the bank. It was like, why yep. don't you put your money in the bank? Because I lost all of my fucking money the last time yeah. I was in yep. the bank. Right. It was like, yeah. which is totally irrational if you haven't lived through it. So that's what I was saying. Yes. About collective trauma. We will have weird behaviors. We will. That grandchildren will be like, wow, granddad is so weird because he washes his hands every time he comes in the door. So yes. you just walk the dog. Why is he washing his hands? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. When my grandpa died, uh, we ended up finding a stack, some stacks of money up in the attic. <laughs> right. right. Yep. Yeah. Can you imagine if tomorrow the banks shut down and took your money. Like imagine yeah. the impact yeah. of that. Like it, yeah. it is, it is almost incomprehensible, right? It's like yeah. the bank went out of business with my money. 
Like, yeah. What is that means? I don't have anything now. Like what? Yeah. yeah. I'm this, very curious about what, what those things will be for us in this, especially this year in the economy. Well, it probably explains why, you know, as sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the last wave of World War II veterans passed away, we saw a comeback of Nazism in this world because it's like there was, there was some sort of generational container yeah. that was yeah. tamping that stuff down. Yeah. It was like Nazis and, are clearly the bad guys. You, you don't have to be a creative screenwriter to be like, you know, to <laughs> no, like, to, to gin up the badness of the Nazis, you know, it's right. not a hard... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, so what I want to do now, guys, is because we're, we're this is a great conversation. We're sort of keeping it, you know, very much in, in sort of the social. I want to yeah. bring this into the personal. A little, right. Um, right. You know, because again, uh, Rob and I just had an, an amazing, like a barn busting two hour webinar about the transformation age and particularly how this is going to affect the future of civilization and self organization and all that. But obviously there's not going to be any transformation age unless it is coming through each of us individually. In mm -hmm. other words, unless we are active participants in that transformation age, unless we are embodying the values and the principles and the practices and the perspectives that allow us to actually not just, you know, see these challenges, but actually do something about them mm -hmm. um, is going to be absolutely paramount. So I, I, I was curious, you know, if there's any number of practices that we can sort of talk about, but I wanted to make this kind of personal and I wanted to ask you guys individually, what has been helpful for you? How, where do you notice yourself seeking refuge and where do you find yourself seeking comfort and where do you find yourself seeking discomfort uh, in the midst of all of this? I mean, I don't have to really seek to find the discomfort. So <laughs> that's my, my first response to that. Um, but honestly, the first, last few weeks, I think in the last couple of days, uh, something has shifted for me, but I was very much in hardcore lower right response mode because it was just absolutely necessary, you know, and that was the practice. It was do as much research as I could to, to prepare myself because every, you know, with the CARES Act and everything that got uh, passed, it's so immense and so complicated. So for me, I wanted to be really on top of that. So honestly, that's been I was doing a lot of that. And then uh, I was actually doing just sitting practice where mm. no form at the end of the day. And, and that felt like a really nice compliment. You know, there was so much like response and doing that. I just needed to let go of it all. Um, but in the last few days, I feel like, you know, we had the bills passed. We have some responses and answers, but we still got to see how it's going to play out. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit unnerving but I feel like I can relax a little bit more and say, okay, now I'm settling into this new weird, this hmm. new temporary weird. It's going to be still weird. I think the whole year, but very weird for the next month or so. So yeah, I just going to say that, that it, like what I'm practicing, what I'm doing is shifting a little bit and it's been a lot of pivots over a very short period of time. Hmm. And let's just uh, make sure that we're properly tracking the actual definition of the word weird which actually yeah. does not mean strange or odd. Weird yeah. literally means uh, in control of one's own fate, which I always thought was funny. That's the only funny. reason why we think it means strange or odd or peculiar is because of a uh, mistranslation from Shakespeare, the three, uh, the three weirding sisters. Uh, well, yeah. like three sisters fate. And we took that, we sort of colloquialized it as being strange, but it actually means if you're weird, which I have been my entire life, just to, you know, in case that wasn't completely fucking obvious to everyone watching. <laughs> um, you know, it just means I'm in control of my own fate. Because... Yeah, and there's that song from Stuart, uh, Stuart Davis, Good Weird. Yeah. 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 yeah, I say that because really I just don't know how to um, 
I, I'm, that's part of my practice is just sitting and owning that. Like, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, I, I, and I like practice. the frame because it, because it <laughs> is weird and we are, and we need to participate with fate, right? We're, yeah. We're, and, and this is like getting your actual hands on the wheel somehow that this, I mean, you're, you're participating with weird and that's um, yeah. actually a very good thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. One of the theme that emerged for us, we did for the responsive meditation training, um, we did a co-design survey for it. We didn't set out the map for the training ahead of time. We gave a survey to see where people are at in their practices, um, which ended up being very fitting for the time. But the, the theme that emerged was responding with loving awareness. And so that feels really spot on. So that I feel like that's a little bit where my practice is going, um, obviously because of the training, but that feels appropriate too. those mm-hmm. combination of awareness and loving into loving awareness. And what, how does that play out? Um, in, in my life. So that's fresh for me too. Beautiful. Keith, how about you, man? Well, for me, um, it's been a couple of things, you know, I've been really rooted in my, in my meditation practice really strongly. Uh, of course I have a Zen background and a strong Zen background. So, um, I'm really lucky in that all of my training has been the process and the practice of being with what is completely right. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, even like Suzuki Roshi, he has a great quote, which I love, which is here to do nothing, here to attain nothing, here in this moment and all it contains. Mm. And so, you know, because I've been fortunate enough to have a 25 year practice now, here in this moment and all it contains means all it contains, not just the good things, not the things you don't want to consider, not, not your feelings. So the practice space of meditation, while I have various ways of coming back into the moment and back into my body. Um, there's a tremendous capacity to be with all that's here, both culturally and personally, um, and to have permission to be inside of all of the experiences, all of the relative experiences of mind, which include, you know, all the things that we've touched upon here. Um, and then letting that go and coming back into basically shikantaza or, or just a simple sitting practice. Um, that's been a really powerful ground for me because it's not, I'm not practicing to escape. I'm practicing to actually be fully here. Mm-hmm. And so then what that means is when I come out of my morning practice, um, a couple of things. One is that I'm a much better steward of my mind. So I'm very careful about where I get news from and how often I get news and what, why I'm seeking the news. So I'm, I'm like a parent that's sort of watching, uh, watching what it is that I'm allowing to come into my self system. Cause like most of us, I imagine like the first few days I was reading the news, you know, 20 times a day and then, and on Facebook, you know, three hours a day. And I'm just noticing that like, it was totally toxic and destructive to my mental and emotional well-being. I was, I was in a place where I was almost inconsolable. Um, and so, you know, just noticing that. And so cleaning up then my daily practices. So I only read the news once a day. Um, uh, I have a really strong physical practice, so I'm a martial arts lineage holder. And so, um, I've still been teaching my students outside with a lot of space between us, of course. Um, but maintaining the integrity of my practice. Um, and then for me socially, just maintaining and keeping some really strong connections with really smart, good people that I know via text message. So rather than being on Facebook, it's like, sort of some various text threads that are running with people who are very, very smart, 
um, very embodied and who it's good to just sort of be in connection with that our 21st century technology allows. Uh, and obviously then, why you're here with us today. Totally. <laughs> and, then the, and then the fourth and final piece for me is relationship. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be in a relationship. Um, it's very nurturing to me and, uh, and to be orienting towards that relationship emotionally, sexually, other ways uh, different than I used to in ways that are actually helping to ground me again and, and to keep me here in this moment. Beautiful. No, it's absolutely gorgeous. And Keith, um, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to actually share um, what you guys have been doing together uh, in terms of the mm -hmm. intimacy training uh, that you've been, you've been doing. It's really fascinating work, important work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, Alyssa is, is, is my partner's name. She and I were are teaching a course right now. It finishes next week, but it was called Simple Sex. And um, it takes sort of basic mindfulness and pretty simple practices really around intimacy, touch, and communication, and sort of breaks those things down in ways that are really fundamental and, and very simple. Because um, what happens with couples, of course, is we get spooled up into our stories and we get spooled up into our reactivity and into whatever our conditioning is and our traumas and all that stuff. And there's so much noise that, like, where do you begin? You know, where do you begin if you've lost sexual connection with your partner, you've lost intimate connection, where do you begin to come back into that? Well, you begin by slowing everything down. You begin by doing really basic touch. You, you sort of learn how to touch again. You learn how to be with sensation again. Um, you learn how to become aware of things like what are things that accelerate your sexual desire and what are things that cause your sexual desire to go on breaks, you know, like the breaks to go on. And you're able to discuss those things. Um, you become more conscious of the stories that you have that, that spool up. So, you know, you, 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 you come on to your partner and she says, no, not tonight. And you spool up into like, oh, the relationship is horrible. You know, like, but being conscious of how quickly that story becomes, becomes what seems real. Mm. And so we take all those, all those pieces and we break them all apart so that people actually have the opportunity to be in relationship with their partner around all the pieces and to find connection again, because the stories are, you know, stories always have grains of truth, but the stories are mostly bullshit. Right. And of so, course being quarantined together and forced into each other's company 24 hours a day. And we're, we're in a 900 square foot apartment right. with two dogs, you know, right. it's like, it's, I mean, this looks spacious, but this is like the whole place. It's an opportunity, <laughs> it's an opportunity to lay down some new stories. I mean, Ryan, you and I yes. were talking at the beginning of the yes. year when we were launching your, uh, your um, Emerge course, yeah. we were talking about how, you know, there's these little opportunities that we have whenever there's a break of habituations, whatever that happens to be, even a, just a calendar changing uh, right. gives you sort of enough distance, enough of sort of a, a, a break in your own habituation for yeah. you to start, you know, working on some new habituations, basically. Yeah. Replace habituations that aren't working for you anymore with ones that maybe will, you know, bring you a little bit deeper in, in, in the year to come. Yeah, well, and that's... This is one of the biggest breaks. Yeah, that's what I was saying at the Absolutely. beginning of this. That's what I exactly Absolutely. was meaning when we first started talking today, that like, it's one of the biggest opportunities and there's some energy behind it that there's like a, a wind behind our backs to help make that happen. I think that's different. Like, whereas in the normal holiday season, I can choose to do that, but I may not choose to do that. But here it's just like, 
And you're also, you're also going against the current when you choose to do it during the holiday season in some ways, right? There's yeah. family dynamics, there's parenting. Yeah, absolutely. Right? All that shit right now is broken. Yeah. It, it yeah. is. Like, there's so much freedom. Like, story, what story? The story it's, of going to the mall, the story of going to the gym, those stories don't exist anymore. I know. Yeah, it's, it's a very potent time, kind of like- Going, going out to dinner. Yeah. That didn't happen. Yeah, like certain events, like maybe solar eclipse when people say the veil is thin, you know, and so more things are possible. It's kind of like something mm -hmm. like that right now where it's just like, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's inherently potent. Yep. And it's in the gross body. I mean, this is like changing yeah. physically how we go about our day. Well, for most people, I mean, I got to say as a, as a Enneagram type four kind of, you know, social recluse, <laughs> my lifestyle hasn't changed all that much um since quarantine that's just an honest fact i spend i've, I've kind of been a homebody for years so i've been training for this yeah. <laughs> um you know the biggest shift for me is that my my wife and daughter are home all day with me now mm -hmm. um which is awesome right i love having that increased intimacy uh with them both i love helping evie with her homeschooling and you know watching her use zoom to as a seven-year-old is always is always pretty cool um but i'm also <laughs> aware that just proximity can create its own Tension. And that's why, Keith, I'm really glad that you sort of um, foregrounded the work that you've been doing because, you know, I've, my, my own prediction is that a year from now, we're going to see both increased divorce rates and increased birth rates. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, we're going to see, we're just going to kind of see. It's definitely going to be a population boom for sure. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and so COVID. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. And, you know, and not to get <laughs> kind of too lost in the meta here, but I think. You know, for me, another opportunity of this transformation age of which we are only in the very beginning chapters. But one of those opportunities, I think, is going to be for the reintegration of the public and the private sphere. So yeah. you know, basically, Ken has talked about um, mm. for years now about how there has been a very basic division of labor that persisted for most of human evolution, really until the Industrial Revolution, where men were largely responsible for public sphere right. activities, women were largely responsible for private sphere activities, which includes things like family and hearth and home and community. Mm -hmm. um, and ever since the Industrial Revolution, and then you know uh, the, the first several waves of feminism, and then finally the deal was kind of sealed with neoliberalism from 1980 until today, the private sphere has been in just like total neglect for decades, right? Just absolute decades. Um, as I said earlier, Warren Farrell really captures it well when he says men have been forced to demonstrate their love for the family by spending time away from the family. Right. Well, now these two spheres are crashing back into each other. And my hope is that just like the 20th century allowed women to move en masse from the private sphere into the public, that this is actually gonna allow men to make a similar move from the public back into revaluing the private. And my sense is if we can actually complete that circuit, if we can actually find a way to reintegrate these two sort of spheres of, of, of our lives, then we're going to start seeing, particularly in men, less anxiety, less depression, less suicide, which, as I mentioned in the Diane show last weekend, is, it continues to be the number one form of gun violence in this country. It's men killing themselves. Mm -hmm. And largely they're killing themselves because they don't have access to the sort of intrinsic value that mm -hmm. can only be sourced from the private sphere, from community and from family right. and from loved ones. Right. It's a beautiful way to put it. I mean, I, I love that. I love the sophistication of the overlay there because the data is alarming. You know. Well, and, 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 it's, and it's one thing, Keith, to actually say something like, to be like, oh, this, wouldn't it be cool if this just kind of happened? But again, it doesn't happen by itself, right? I mean, social right. conditions- And this is what you're talking about, the script being broken, right? So the script right. being broken, men are at home now, they're being forced at home, they're getting a different experience, they're doing their jobs, a lot of us, 
well from home. And so what's going to, what's going to be different? You yeah. Know? And for the men who lost their jobs, they're probably not going to find one for another few months until we're on the other side of this pandemic. And that is going to be painful for those. I mean, again, there's a reason why most men kill themselves after A, they lose their job, B, they lose their wife. Because in the first case, they're losing their extrinsic value. In the second case, they're losing their intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is going to, uh, again, be, just be a new pressure that is going to force many men to, um, to confront this. Mm-hmm probably for the first time because it, it, you know, you lost your job. Yeah. You're going to feel that pressure to go get a new job, but you can't right now. You can't, you can't leave your house. You got to deal with this for the next several months. And that's going to be, that's going to require sort of a rewiring on the level of just like masculine identity in a certain, in a certain sense. I think, you know, along with this, and this is so tied into so many other foundational ways that we exist in all the quadrants right now, like talking about the generational theory and the reorganization of society and how we function, similar to, again, going back to the Great Depression, the New Deal. That was like the last time we had like a significant reordering of how we live together. Taking something like um, the universal basic income idea, you know, this is coming up much more potently across the world because even right now people are saying, hey, we need a UBI at least for the next month or two. Mm-hmm. So that's actually an example of that. But the thing is, is if well, we go back to the- pushing it through, which is great. Yeah, which was like, Only Nixon can go to China. And yeah. A Democratic president, I don't know. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and, keep, keep going, sorry, I mean- Yeah, yeah no, no, it's good. Um, <laughs> so the thing is, is like, that's, I think what you're saying, Corey, is true in this, in this interim where things are completely shut down. The thing is, if we go back to the same economy, I think there's going to be certain things in place that will not support what you just said. Oh, but, yeah. but I think we're going to be paying attention more to palpably saying like, okay, maybe we really tangibly in an embodied way need to look at finally embracing some new, new ways of being, new ways of, of handling the economy. And for example, if you imagine a UBI and everybody has a certain baseline covered how will everybody, men and women, everybody, how will we all, might we interact a little differently? Because I think with some people I know, like, I don't know, knowing you all right here, I don't see us ever not being incredibly ambitious. Hmm. Like, that's always gonna be the case where like, right. where we want to express. But the thing is, is like, if we knew that we had some of our, our stability covered, how might we create differently? How might we then change with, with respect to the extrinsic and intrinsic? But that requires another, another element to change. It has nothing to do with the things we just talked about. It, it's a separate element of how we do it because otherwise it's like, well, no, we're just gonna keep trucking and trying to bring in you know, the income in a system that's beat. Like yeah. even by economist standards, it's, it's just right, right. It's not functional. Well, there's, and there's another interesting counterpoint there, which, which mm. uh, that I, I, I am acquaintances with a really brilliant Swiss financier. And his take on Donald Trump and everything going on in America was so different from that line. And I don't, mm. I'm holding it here as just like, yeah. I, I don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. But his take basically was that like, as a Swiss citizen and a European, the Europeans, sort of two things happen with them that are different from Americans. One is that they don't tolerate failure nearly at the rate that we tolerate failure. So if you go out and you try something mm. and you fail, you sort of get put into a box culturally more than happens here. Here it's like, mm. you haven't failed enough, we don't want to hire you because you don't right. have the experience. Mm. Um, but two of the more interesting part for me, he said is that like only someone like Elon Musk or Donald Trump or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs 
they only make sense in America. America. The fact that America has no social safety net means that all bets are off and there's this explosion of creativity that comes out of America that's different than elsewhere in the world because basically we don't have a choice. We can, we can get a job and work in an office or we can be innovators, but like, but there's no like, if you're an innovator, you're already, you have a very particular personality as the three of us do where you're yeah. willing to face cataclysmic failure because there's no net. Right. Like that, if I don't yeah. succeed, there's no net, right? It's if, like, if, I, I just own this fucking streets, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, but I, I actually, I don't I think, think that's I, good, I, but, it, but it's, it's, it's something. No, I think that's oh, actually well. totally accurate. I think it's just <clears> a matter of, uh, you know, with Jeremy Rifkin again, uh, making the point of differentiating between three groups of people, government, corporations, business, you can just say business and the, and the public, the people. And a lot of times in our culture, we only have two groups, government and the people and business is a part of the people. But as more of those three have gotten out of balance, it's clearly not just two anymore. And so I think that's the thing. It's not talking about going to one extreme or to another extreme. It's just saying like, if something gets out of balance enough, even what you just said can't, can no longer function at, at a certain point, even that dynamic, I think might break down, you know, to, to actually serve. So, and this is not to say like, well, this should be the strategy exactly over here. I think it should be exactly like this, but to simply say, shit ain't working and we're feeling it not work. So like maybe we're going to look at all those aspects and figure out something, experiment with, with something new. Yeah. No, I, th I think that when, when you don't have a robust safety net, um, society turns into a game that I play with my daughter every night where the floor is hot lava. And <laughs> if the floor is hot lava, you're going to get really damn creative finding ways to never actually have to touch the floor. Right. And I think that is that yeah. underlies so much of American innovation. And there's obviously a positive there. There's an anti-fragility that gets right. developed there. Right. Um, and yet, you know, if those stresses are too overwhelming and you don't have an opportunity to, to recover, then you're, you're not gaining strength, you're losing strength. Right. And it also points to the fallacy of, you know, the, the, the sort of American fallacy that government should be small and corporations should be left to their own because who... Who else, what company is going to do a $2 trillion bailout of, right. of the economy? That's Nobody. Right. There's, there's no companies anywhere near that size. Yep. Nowhere near that size, right? Only a federal government has those kinds of resources that are commercial. And so it does sort of, it's good. A crisis like this does break a lot of these stories. And it certainly breaks that story that limited government is best. Yeah, limited government is best when the economy is humming along and things are going good. But to your point, at the beginning of this call, Ryan, it's not addressing this increasing tension that's been happening and happening and happening. And then when the system breaks, suddenly it's like, yeah, oh, we're going to bail out the airlines and the cruise lines. But what about the cooks? And yeah, the, it just out of balance. And Keith, you know, I think this is something that uh, you might uh, relate with, you know, in terms of talking about masculinity. So like we've seen movies and tv shows like let's take Mad Men. i remember don draper showing his like growing up and he went to work like on a farm or something like that i can't remember that was going what was happening there but in, even in the great depression or after that there was this sense that like well if you fail you could go find some sort of dignified work like can you sweep a floor i can sweep a floor okay here you go and i'm i'm doing something purposeful and i may not have much but i can eat you know, I can cover certain things. And what's happening now is that's not how business is, is ran, ran now. You know, it's like eliminate people and have more profit, but not create more jobs. So I think there's more, there's fewer and fewer dignified ways to even make a living, even if it's just getting by. I think that's completely different. And that's part of the old American dream that persists, but is no longer true.
Yeah. And, and that's I, the reason, like, if, if you're looking, if you're, if you identify in a masculine way and, you, and you're purpose driven and it becomes very hard to even enact that in any sort of way, like you can't even start to fail. Right. Right. And there's, there's great data. I think actually it was maybe Rob Smith that pointed this out to me years ago. I don't know the exact statistics, but it's something like the biggest employer in the mid fifties was GM and adjusted for inflation. The hourly rate was something like 50 or $55 an hour adjusted wow. for inflation. Right? Wow. Biggest employer, 50, 55 bucks an hour. That puts tons of people into the middle class. Post-World post War II, right? The big boom, everything's... And of course, who's the biggest employer now? Walmart. Walmart. And, what, yeah. and what's the average wage? About 13, 12 bucks an hour. So, yeah. so you know, that's just, that's just data. But that data says, really highlights pretty, what it is you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so much of that was, uh, you know, further pathologized, obviously, by, by neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, you know, again, from really Reagan and Thatcher in 1980 until today yeah. and the, the yeah. dominant sort of economic paradigm that we've all been living under. It's interesting because, you know, you mentioned Rob Smith um, in our call on Monday. He actually declared neoliberalism is dead. Mm. It's dead. I mean, it's, it's, it's already in the grave and we just don't realize that yet. And in fact, in this period, if you remember that graphic I showed just earlier, one of yeah. Rob's graphics. Could you just define that, that for me, Corey, in a way that's succinct, just so I... Neoliberalism in, in, in general. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky word to define because everyone walks away with a different sort of. <laughs> but really, yeah, that's the why, like, what is he talking about? Yeah, ne neoliberalism from an economic point of view can really be reduced down to uh, the old phrase trickle down economics. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But it's, it's basically, you know. Low taxes, high income right. for companies. Okay. So, so right. all, all water runs downhill, basically. That's right. right? The companies so, be big and powerful and they'll take care of people. And Okay, got it. Yep. So, and, and, it's, and it's, it is simply the latest in a series of economic paradigms that each last for about 40 years or so. Okay. Right? So we had, um, so we had uh, you know, the Gilded Age, yeah, yeah. Uh, which led up until the stock market crash of 1929, which brought in Keynesian economics, which right. was a big shift away from our previous laissez-faire economics. Uh -huh. That gave us like 40 years um, of, of middle-class growth, particularly after World War II, um, which lasted until, you know, really that paradigm crashed and burned in the 1970s. Yeah, 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 with, with stagflation and all of that, right? Yep. And then Rob mentions 1971 was the year, was the transition point when we, uh, you know, uh, removed money from the gold standard. Right which completely reinvented economics. Nine right. years later, this new paradigm of neoliberalism Got it. Okay. Uh, gets you. established. And that's Got where it. we've been for the last 40 years. And now we have actually seen you know, the, fall, the demise of that paradigm. But the problem is people don't know that yet. Rob is actually making the case, guys, we are now a fully socialist society. Look how many trillions of dollars is getting pumped into our economy from the Fed. This is, this is. Two trillion is the first one. That's just the first well, bit. Yeah. It's a two trillion. That's a holder for, from what I understand, expands out to six trillion. Yeah. Now yeah. it's a socialism without the safety net, which I think is going to create one of those pressures, right? Uh, as Rob says, we're, we're dealing with all the right contradictions right now, which I, mm. I, I really like that frame. Mm. Um, but yeah, basically those days of small government, you know, uh, uh, those days are over. Republicans aren't allowed to talk about small government anymore. Right, right. From this point on. But the- Well, they, they the will for a while, part, yes. Well, of but, course but they'll they get caught out. Of course <laughs> they will. But the difficult thing is going to be in this sort of great release, in this downslope that we're going down right now, before we hit that sort of bottom point and start, you know, uh, accelerating up again, there's going to be so much relearning. 
right? We're going to have to completely oh, yeah. learn uh, and, and sort of make subject out of, or make object out of subject of our own economic and political biases, because mm -hmm. those previous ways of going about doing things doesn't work anymore. It's, mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't match our reality any longer. And we mm -hmm. have to find a new language. Mm -hmm. um, and really, we have to find a new comprehensive economic paradigm like neoliberalism was, like Keynesian economics was, and like maybe something like the Green New Deal or ideally the Teal New Deal uh, can be one day for us. Yes. So what other practices do we want to talk about, guys? Again, I, I like how we're oscillating between sort of the personal and the meta. Um, it, it actually, I think, um, enhances the conversation. But, um, you know, for example, one thing that's been really prevalent for me has been simply um, art and creativity. It is amazing how much beauty is allowing us to endure this. I mean, whether we're talking about watching your favorite stuff on Netflix or what have you, but these cultural products um, are, are in every way sustaining us. And even more than that, creating art is itself a powerful embodiment practice um, and is a powerful way to actually cope with um, a lot of the anxieties and the fears and some of the rage even uh, that gets generated out of this. You have a place to focus it. You have a place to kind of holster mm. your own anxiety uh, while yeah. you work on creating something beautiful. Um, I think so for me, along the art and creativity front, um, you know, in the last few days, again, as, as I found the ground, you know, had to go into response mode, just like we all have, you know, how are we adapting? And now that that's kind of getting in a groove and thinking about, well, you know, what if I just don't have that much work over the next month or two months? Like there's just not, nothing coming in. Maybe there's stimulus support. Maybe that gets by, but what am I going to do with my time? Be creative. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's what came up for me. And there's something again, too, that the creativity feels has, it has deeper roots for me that it's going to be more potent for me. So I want to lean into that. It's not just simply like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm just trying to figure out what to do with my time, but like what would be meaningful to do. And definitely creativity came up for me as a response. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, for me, I mean, um, it's it's been a it's been an interesting month. Um, I would say, whereas typically I orient towards being someone who's a, a creator of content, you know, working on books and things like that, um, I've really gone to being a consumer of creativity. Uh, to your <laughs> point, Corey, which has been really good, which is that you know there were a million shows that I wanted to watch that I just didn't have time to. There you go, and. Uh, and, you know, because being 47 years old, like television when I grew up was just fucking terrible. It was unwatchable. You know, it was just yeah. so I never really got in the habit of watching TV. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I've just been enjoying being able to give myself permission to, at the end of the day, actually just watch all of this unbelievably intelligent, well-directed, fantastically acted entertainment that's out there. I'm, I'm really blown away by it. I'm still reading and doing all that, but I never mm. really consumed that kind of media in that way. And, and it's, been, it's been really enjoyable and it's helped alleviate some of the stress and the mm. strain. And, you know, frankly, by the time I get around the seven, eight o'clock at night, I'm looking for some healthy escapism that isn't, you know, yeah. getting to the bottom of a bottle or, you know, whatever. So, so it gives me a way to sort of disappear into creativity and, and, uh, and I love that it's, it's shared culturally. You know, a lot of these shows that I've heard about, you know, suddenly like I'm, I'm back on the ins with people. I have something that I can like awesome. talk about that's actually fun and, you know, light and interesting. Yep. 
dude, I finally like I finally started watching Tiger King, and it's like I have a secret. <laughs> I have a secret decoder ring now for like all the memes in my Facebook feeds. So. That's funny. I, I need <laughs> to watch that too. For me. I'm happy that uh, CBS uh, finally uh, made Picard free. So I, know, I just, I, know, I, just I just joined that train with the first episode. Me nice. too. Me too. Ryan, yeah. we're going to have a special uh, inhabit Starfleet episode. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge nerd there. So I, I, I could definitely be a part of oh, that. So. They've, they've been imagining this for us for 50 years, right? Yeah. I mean, they've been sort of giving us this, this, this possible Omega point of, um, you know, idealized, you know, post-economics, post-race, post-gender, right? Yep. That's right. Mm. Until you get to deep space nine and then you're like, oh, okay, there's still assholes in this world. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Yeah, no. And it's, it, Keith, I totally agree. I mean, thank God that this pandemic is happening right on, you know, sort of, we've had a golden age of television for the last probably 10 years or so. Absolutely. Um, so now we have just a lot of fruit to enjoy. And the other <laughs> point that you're making that I think is really important, again, because there is, I think, when it comes to our practice, um, generally, one tension I notice a lot among integralists, or maybe it's just mine and I'm projecting it out everywhere because I'm really good at that too, but is this <laughs> tension that exists sort of between ascending and descending practices where mm. people oftentimes feel a need to identify so sort of strongly with one direction or the other. Mm. And really what it comes down to is like any other workout or any other cycle, you really do need both. You need to be able to engage and you need to be able to, to release. And I think that those forms of release are oftentimes... Um, sort of looked down on, you know what I mean? Like, like you say, I want a solution that, you know, doesn't require the bottom of a bottle. Well, sometimes it's okay to find the bottom of a bottle, right? I mean, sometimes it's okay to, to sure. light a joint and just kind of like let go for a little while, so long sure. as it doesn't become your dominant method of coping with right. it. Right, as long as you're choosing it, right? For me, there's, there's the choice factor of there yeah. of, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, which I, you know, I'm pretty plugged into what's going on most of the time. And there are times that I'd say, you know what? I choose to disengage from, what's going on right now, including my own thought processes and lose myself on a particular thing. But that's different than being like, than falling into it. You know, I don't binge watch. I don't do things like that where, you know, it's like I, I, I try to keep some of the, um, the structure around my life, especially in a time like this, because generating structure is an important way to maintain the integrity of your, of your mental health and your emotional health and certainly your physical health. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you, you want to create a structure and you want to be able to play and dance within that structure. That When you create the structure, it, it, you create the structure so inside of the structure itself, there's places where you can let go and then the structure holds you. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll feel less guilty about the blunt I smoke after I get off the, the college. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, and uh, another thing I wanted to check in around is uh, shadow practices. Mm-hmm. So there is, um, and I, I can definitely speak personally here, there is just a ton <laughs> of shadow being generated here. Uh, and it's shadow that is oftentimes um, very easy to focus like a fucking fire hose on mm-hmm. a particular target, um, mm-hmm. such as, for example, the federal response to all of this. And when I start feeling like, wow, lives who you know I love are actually being threatened by a botched response from the top down, that generates so much, um, you know, oftentimes righteous, but still could be, could easily turn malignant, uh, just the rage that it generates. And it's a rage that has no, really no place to go right now, other than if you happen to be making art, for example. Um, otherwise it can get kind of gummed up um, and it's, it can be hard to find a, a, a good outlet to where that, that um, the luminosity 
of those of those feelings, both positive feelings and negative feelings, can actually be in service of something. Um, I think a lot of us are struggling to find a way to to manage and direct um, some of the the really strong emotional reactions that we're having to all this. Do you guys have any advice to that? Uh, well, I certainly do. Which is, you know, for me, you know, having trained with Jumpo Roshi for a long time, sort of Jumpo One Hundred and One is is feelings or information, right? So from a Zen perspective, a feeling is no different from sound or smell or taste. It's, it, it comes into awareness and like the smell, oh, there's information in the smell, dinner's being cooked, right? Um, feeling, strong feelings arise, rage. It's like, okay, well, what's the information in the feeling? Well, the information might be something like, I really care about what's going on in the world. Am I in touch with the care? Am I in touch with my heart? Um, there's a ton of fear here because I feel out of control and, and there's actually nothing I can really do and caring about something and having no control over it is pretty intolerable for most humans. Mm -hmm. And the only way to actually be with that is to feel rage because when I'm angry, I feel like I'm in control and I can be like, well, fuck the guy in the white house. He fucked this up. Fuck, 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 fuck. But that actually doesn't help anything. It just makes more noise. It makes more violence in the world. Right? Mm -hmm. So for me, the process is like, what's the information and the feeling? And where I am right now, April, what are we, second, first, whatever it is today, um, there's not a whole lot I can do, but be sovereign in myself, be committed in my partnership to be loving and caring and to slow things down, to respond to calls like this, to, to share what little bit of information I may have or perspective. And that's all I can do right now. And yeah. it's like, that sucks. And it makes me feel sort of impotent in some ways, but that's just the way it is. So mm -hmm. that's, that's one way that I work with it. Mm -hmm. Sort of a radical um, acceptance. Totally. Yeah. I mean, what, are, what other yeah. choice do you have? Right. I mean, you, you can resist it, but what does that do again? Just, mm -hmm. makes, just makes you, you know, miserable. Yeah. One practice to continue on that thread there. And before I say this, I want to just bookmark or, acknowledge that certain shadow patterns can become incredibly intense where we have to talk about them on a different level. So my partner also named Alyssa is a mm. psychologist at uh, the VA. And mm. so some of the people she helps are dealing with incredibly complex uh, patterns of reaction and response to the world that are going to require some deep dives and some like knowledge of how certain feelings and behaviors and thoughts function, you know? So for anybody who's, you know, dealing with shadow on that level, I want to just acknowledge that like, okay, you might need a, a more robust system, but. Totally. And I, yeah. I just want to jump in there and say, yes, when you get into yeah. activating the sympathetic nervous system and right, yeah. blood coming out of the neocortex, right? There's all sorts of implications yeah. here that yeah. require a much different orientation than what I just said. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm going to go on the same orientation you, you, you just said here, <laughs> but I, I just, I think, I mean, that's not generally what we're focused on in this show and on integral life, you know, uh, although maybe uh, Keith Witt, um, he, he probably goes into some of this a little bit more, but um, hey, I've got a close up of something there. Oh, sorry, my, uh, my phone, my laptop's about to die, so I'm plugging it back in. Oh, okay. I was trying to do it silently, but then you called me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one practice that um, I use from that uh, Vince's, uh, Vince Horn has um, evolved uh, from one of his teachers and friend Kenneth Folk is social noting. And one of the social noting practices, um, there is noting. And basically social noting makes it even more possible possible to meditate socially with people, 
where you can feel it more palpably that we are meditating together rather than perhaps we're all meditating silently and maybe, maybe we feel like we're meditating together or maybe I feel like I'm in my own meditation bubble. And the point of this there is practice is just to say there is and note with one or two words, whatever it is that you notice. And so like, for example, feeling like there is rage, there is uncertainty, there is fear, there is hopelessness, there is expansion. And actually in that practice, what happens is you can see the waves of how much our experience changes moment to moment. So maybe one moment there's rage, and another moment there's collapse, you know, and then another moment there's like, oh no, maybe there's, this is possible. Then doing it socially for me helps with the shadow practice because actually I don't feel alone, you know? I feel like, oh, I hear Keith say there is rage and I go, oh, somehow automatically maybe my rage is allowed to have some space. Like I can say, oh, there is rage. And then actually the rage can move because I hear Corey say there is ease. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Mm. So it's a very simple form and practice. There's a, a social noting guide there where you can go and see the, the practice, but the, f- the form is just what I said. So pretty easy. Oh, I, I, I love that. You know, there's, um, there's a, yeah, cool. I like that too. there's a cohort in the integral community, for example, who um, likes to say things like they're very, um, they're very interested in sort of sussing out the collective shadow, whatever that means. And I think that that's mm. a phrase that kind of means something different to everyone mm. who uses it. Um, but my response to that is typically, if you're someone who is just so sort of preoccupied with the collective shadow, one of the best ways that you can participate in that conversation is to do your own shadow work publicly, publicly, you know, allow yourself the vulnerability, because mm. if we're not actually encouraging and helping and supporting each other in this, then what chances do we have of even seeing a collective shadow through our own biases and shadows, right? I mean, nine times out of 10, what we call a collective shadow is actually just our own projection in the first place. All right, it's very difficult to suss those out sometimes. It, it, it really is. So you have to really you know, be as clean of a vessel as you possibly can before you even start having that conversation. And if that is a conversation you're interested in doing, um, share your own shadow practices, share your own vulnerabilities and really be a role model, I think, for the rest of us to begin to sort of, um, you know, make these little hidden subjects into objects wherever we find them, in ourselves, in each other, yeah. among us, between us, uh, what have you. And, you know, when it comes to dealing things with like rage and, um, you know, even righteous anger and things like that, you know, it's one of the things we often joke about where it's like, you're being an asshole to me. So I'm going to three, two, one this. Okay. Okay. I have done my, I've now reclaimed sort of my projections that I put on you. And guess what? You're still an asshole. But now I am so much more responsible <laughs> for how I respond to your assholishness. Well, because you don't have an unseen hook in it. Okay? That's right. That's where we get into trouble is, is if, I, if I have some unseen loathing of the way you're being right now, Corey, which I don't, but if I did, you know, it's like, it's like until I can get clear on what the hook is, I, I can't actually be in real relationship with you. And I certainly can't call you out on anything because it's like, you know, why am I so bothered by X? You know, it's like, well, that, that's all about me. You know, and you're right, maybe behavior X is problematic, but I got to clean it up on this side of the street before I can go and call it out, or I should anyway. Yep. Hmm. Because otherwise you end up with people who are crusaders, right? I mean, we've certainly seen with all of the bringing down of all the spiritual teachers, which some could argue is justified, but there's a whole lot of crusading going on. Very um, much. And <laughs> I don't know how helpful it is. I mean, for me, when spiritual teachers demonstrate their humanness i'm never even moderately surprised you know it's like oh they look the teacher was human and they fucked up yeah 
Mm-hmm. And they probably should have been a little more self-aware that they have shadow and that they're still human despite their level of insight. Um, what's the uh, surprise about? I, I, think that's I, a I good don't understand ex- the surprise. I think that's a good example, actually. <clears throat> they're in a, weaves together, Keith. Uh, um, something you said earlier, uh, Corey. Um, yeah, so something you said, Corey, brought up the idea of purity. So, for example, around um, can I, is it okay to drink or check out and do whatever? There's a confusion sometimes, especially in spiritual practice, right? Like, so if if I can awaken to what is timeless or vast and formless, I can confuse that experience with some idea of behavioral, of some like behavioral purity, whereas reality is pure in the sense of it's not, it, it's it's doesn't take on our concepts, you know, it's pure of concepts. Not our, it has nothing to do with purity of maintaining a certain behavior. And then especially um, with spiritual communities, as Keith was pointing out, a lot of people take on that approach with themselves. There's no way to be a crusader without having a sense of purity of yourself and, and denying your own shadows. Mm-hmm. And then totally. and there's no way around that uh, to abide in that thing, but to also project that on to other people in authority positions to say, well, you must be this way because otherwise, why would I be looking to you? And, and I like purity, uh, you know, so the whole thing happens. And then when we call, call the person out, then we're like, what? how did this happen? You know? And of course we're all adults here. So it's not the same thing as like, we're, we're six years old and, and, you know, can't know better. It's like, we're growing as adults, projecting our own sense of purity, denying our own shadows, and then jamming that onto authority figures, even though some teachers, needed to go down some teachers no, still need to go down some totally. communities need to fall apart but i totally. have been, been surprised sometimes about totally. the same way keith as you about the reactions you know of, of well how I'm, we dealt with that i'm like yes huh? that doesn't make sense to me seems a little overdone well it's interesting <laughs> how we have we have different tolerances for shadow based on what a person's role is which is fascinating this is this right. is a actors conversation. over here spiritual teachers over here school yeah. teachers over here yeah yeah no, that's right. I, I was in a I was in a conversation on there's a there's an integral Discord channel and I was having a conversation. We were talking about um, the differences, for example, between a spiritual teacher who you know, let's say, sexually assaults a student. Okay, there's one shadow, versus yeah. Michael Jackson's music, right, as a pedophile, right, mm-hmm. versus uh, Bill Cosby in his comedy. The question is of all of these. Or, or, or like, or like a Reggie Ray who had some issues around power. Yeah, like, totally. No, totally. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, can throw. I, any, I was thinking of that example these, too. We can throw any <laughs> number of these on the, on the. I didn't want any. There's some specific names we could use for the spiritual. Yeah, yeah I just want to say just, just because to, it was it was a power thing, not a sexual thing. It was just a, it was a different kind of shadow. Sure, totally. Yeah. And just for the record, I wasn't thinking of him, but um, yeah. So the the question becomes: At what point is the product or the artifact created by these different kinds of artists? At oh, what point is the artifact? compromised or ruined or destroyed like so i made the case for example um michael jackson's history does nothing whatsoever to the quality of his music i can still listen to michael jackson music and if i think about it for a few cycles maybe i'll get that sort of disgust response ew this guy you know what i mean but the music kind of stands on its own as opposed to say bill cosby um his comedy in my view is no longer funny the comedy has been undermined because the comedy, the only reason the comedy can be funny is if he is portraying this image of a wholesome family man. Well, once you get rid of that image, so in other words, his, the, his art, his products are, are, are inextricably linked to his moral line of development. And when his moral line of development is exposed to be as shitty as it is for all to see, 
all products of that moral line are forever tainted. And so mm-hmm. Bill Cosby's humor will probably never be funny again. Mm-hmm. When it comes, now the question comes to uh, spiritual teachers. You know, if a spiritual teacher has a new theory, um, let's say a new theory uh, that has to do with how, um, let's call it the special self theory, for example. <laughs> Am I using the euphemisms here? Mm. To what extent are the <laughs> products of that, of that sort of teaching ruined? I mean, I can bring this to Adi Da. I think Adi Da was a disgusting asshole. And I wish that all of his teachings were thrown, you know, were put into like a, a bottle and thrown into the ocean and discovered by someone 50 years later. I think it'd be right. effective. But they, well, but they, they stand on their and own. There's, there's going to be a little bit own. of a... There's gonna be a little difference for why they stand on their, on their own. And I think, you know, with the art stuff that you mentioned, I think that's really, those are really good examples. And it, for me, the biggest point there is like, is there a conversation or is there not a conversation? To me, there should be a conversation. But some of our culture reacts to say, there's no conversation, it's this way or nothing. Um, but, you know, in terms of spiritual teacher, a lot of them are talking about something that is part of our inherent human experience. In the way that like, if you, if a, a scientist says, hey, there's gravity, there, there is gravity. Like, it doesn't matter what the hell they did. That isn't like, what are we going to do? Be like, we can't talk about gravity because that we found out that that scientist or this scientist did something really nasty. Right. Because you know? they're talking about, yeah, they're talking about the upper right, which is, yeah. which is independent of the, of the you know. Yeah. The, yeah. The, so the, like the genome, like it doesn't matter what kind of a person you are. Yeah. I think that's why things can resonate. So you take like Trunkpa, that's like the, one of the most classic people we talk about because of, of, in terms of like, what was his behavior like? Was it shadow stuff? Was it crazy wisdom? Blah, blah, blah. Where it, he still said a lot of things where people said, damn, that was deep when you know that cut through and well it's because it's cutting through to something that's part of us it's not his thing it's not his special theory per se you know so but i think you know just bring this back to our own experience like in the quarantine stuff and all that it's just like it's worth looking at the shadow and 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 working with that in some way and seeing what is our relationship to it and how it's playing out right what are our assumptions about it etc right and be leery of anyone spiritual teacher talking about covid anybody that isn't aware of shadow, right? Be, be wary of them if they're in a position of authority and teaching and trying to share wisdom with others, right? That would be my categorical warning to anybody is that yeah. there's no, especially with spiritual teachers, there's no such thing as after enlightenment. After enlightenment doesn't exist. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't fucking exist, right? I, I defy any teacher to, to, <laughs> to, to have a Dharma combat with me on after enlightenment. If there's after enlightenment, you shouldn't be teaching. Right. Great. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's definitely clear that when it comes to things like walk and talk, um, this is much <clears throat> more critical for spiritual teachers than it is for musicians or artists and what have you, even though I think that um, those people still stand in, in people's shadow all the time. And then there's another side of shadow too, which I think, um, you know, I, I had an experience this week, which was I only really noticed how um, miserable I was feeling when I, when I watched a video on the internet, there's this video that's going around by uh, John Krasinski, who was uh, in the office, and it's a compilation of good news, right? And it's like a compilation of all the videos of people clapping for doctors and all that. Mm. And my experience of that was, um, when I watched that, that was like my release. Like, it gave me just enough space from sort of the doom and gloom that we had been so immersed in that I realized like, wow, positivity and hope have been sitting in my shadow. Mm. As soon as I was able to sort of crack open and feel that, I was actually able mm. to feel the weight of everything that I had been holding wow, beautiful. until that moment. Yeah. Beautiful. You know? and I, I don't I, think you're alone in that. that. That I mean, yeah. just saying that, a part of me is like, ooh. 
Yeah. Ooh, maybe I need yeah. to go watch that video. <laughs> yeah. Same. Same. I haven't got to watch I mean, it yet. It moves some shit around for sure. And mm. um, I think it's, it's, you know, particularly important right now when we are so immersed in social media and we have all this chatter going on, Keith, I know you said only spend five minutes a day there, but um, you know, as like Mr. <laughs> integral life guy, I've got to always be paying attention to what people are talking about and all that shit. And it, well, you, know, you, it you say you do. Well, okay, that's my story. And I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I push I back that, on that a little bit. But but I have to actually consciously seek out certain types of information in order to you know give myself that that amount of, of contrast and be like, okay, this is this is still such a fucking beautiful world that we are living in. Yeah, yeah, and you have to be careful, Corey, when you're on social media that much. I love Ricky Gervais's quote on Twitter. He said, he said, arguing with Twitter is like arguing with bathroom graffiti. <laughs> and it's yeah. like and it's like yeah. you know i just can't tolerate the the uh emotional swamp of facebook anymore you know like if you post something Corey, or if ryan posts something on my wall then i read it and it's like i let it all the way in and there's a whole but if someone i don't know you know yeah. I, I just don't pay attention anymore because it's there's a real especially in times like this right there's if we if there were 20 of us sitting around a table and someone said something i would get all kinds of information on the way that he or she holds their body right. on how they speak on the look of their eyes right there'd be all this data coming in that would help me gauge whether or not that opinion had some merit or no merit but when it's just text on a page and it's from john smith who i, who I don't know personally i have to read that with the same level of authenticity and integrity that i read Corey's comments potentially. So mm -hmm. it goes all the way in and then I go, you know, like, mm. right. And I get upset because I, but I don't know who this person is. It could be some, you know, it could be a 14 year old in his basement, you know, like, mm. like, um, Keith, my, my process is I a little easier. I cut that hole out. Like, so I just, what's that mean? My, my process is I just say canceled, not canceled, canceled, not canceled. <laughs> it's fast, man. It's way easier. You should try it. Well, it's funny because I, I see, I, th I think I stand on the other shore from you guys um, because yeah. I do a lot of um, very in-depth Facebook. I've seen oh, it. I would say Corey really does that. It. Yeah, I don't, I can't. Oftentimes with people, you know, who other people wouldn't bother conversing no. with. It's like, he's, you know, he's arguing with Trumper. Trumper he's all kinds of people. I've, I've, well, I'm, I'm in awe. Well, and it's, well, it's interesting. I just want to say, you know, I get two kinds of feedback from those interactions. Yeah. I get mm. feedback on the one side. Keith, you and I have had this conversation several times over the last couple of years where you're just like, dude, why are you putting so much energy into, mm. you know, something like that? Um, mm -hmm. And then on the other side, I'll get people who are like, I can't believe how much patience you have mm -hmm. to actually like really calmly walk people through I this. I think both equally every time. I, I think it's true. <laughs> totally. And I will say that like I get, and then this is just my own process. This is where I said, again, you know, all the advice that we're giving people, you kind of have to figure out what works for you for your typology mm. and for your yeah, yeah. because for me i get so much of the juice for my creativity for these ongoing shows in terms of like what should we talk about well yeah. i want to know where the fault lines are i want to know where people are really falling into the gaps and whether it's even possible to build a bridge there if it's if it's remotely if i have yeah. an interaction with someone on the internet sense. that tells me there's a possibility of a bridge being built here then god damn it i'm going to try to build it you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or yeah. even if I can't bring that person to the other side, at least all the nameless people who, who mm -hmm. aren't making comments, who are just sort of casually reading, at least they can be exposed to a new perspective, hopefully, that will, you know, give them a little bit more yeah. healthy guardrails around their thinking. I think it's, I mean, I, 
I think those things you said earlier of like, wow, like your patience and then how, why are you spending that time doing that? But I would also say like, you, that's why you're the, the perfect person to be a leader in the integral community online because you, you're willing to do that. Cause I know I wouldn't do that, but like it, there needs to be that, you know, there yeah. needs to be um, some deeper engagement with, uh, with people. Otherwise it's, there aren't going to be any bridges. <laughs> yeah. And there, and to, to the, you know, the ownership piece for me, the shadow piece for me, right. Is that like, I, can get really triggered if someone misinterprets what I say. And so mm. it's a horrible meeting. Like Facebook is a horrible meeting for people that have a lot of complexity and you say something and it's like, and they write yeah. 20 pages on a complete misunderstanding of what you yep. said. And it's like, at that point, I'm just like, fuck yeah. it. You know, like, it's just not, you know, I, like I have other things I want to do, which might be like, have a glass of wine and, and watch Westworld. You know, right. maybe like, that's going to yeah. be more important than responding to. I think John that's fair Smith to, to decide that. Like in terms of relationship, <laughs> like talking about inhabit or your social media uh, kind of stuff. It, yeah, I think it's important. I decide with Facebook in particular that I find it to be more frustrating, and than Twitter for me. Mm. Ironically, I I hadn't hardly posted on Twitter in a long time. I was more on Facebook for a while. But I'm kind of like, I feel more comfortable over on Twitter unless I'm posting just informational links, you know, like here's mm. a link. But I stopped because it was for all the reasons you said, Keith, that it just became too difficult to have a meaningful interaction with people. And it, w- it was a time suck. Yeah. You know, it didn't, it didn't lead to anything really meaningful or productive for me. And that was a choice where I think also there's been an emergence of more tight knit uh, online communities that exist in discord in slack mm-hmm. in Facebook groups where people are still online, but there's more intimacy. So I think that's shown up a lot more in recent years. Whereas in the past, that's what, what it was like, you know, if you had a blog in 2004, it was the most intimate space that I've had online because there was only like 10 people who knew about your blog and, and you could comment and, and share things, but now, yeah, yeah different. Yeah, no, it's interesting. My, my experience of it is that, you know, something like Facebook can be really good for, you know, I, I think of it as like almost sharpening my blades, kind of getting more clarity, checking my own biases, just making sure like, yeah. there's nothing in your view that I'm missing here, right? Um, mm. But the rewarding conversations I have are here in Zoom, actually. These are the most intimate, rewarding conversations um, that I have. I mean, particularly since it's the only way I get to see other grownups. Um, so it's got that going for it too, but, um, <laughs> this is really, you know, it's, it's funny, Ryan, because this really has been, um, uh, foregrounded for me ever since your, uh, embodied success course that we mm. did, because those mm. were, you know, we had all these really deeply intimate interactions on zoom where people were just like yeah. allowing full vulnerability, where we have this limbic resonance with each other, where we can yeah. see the expressions in each other's face and the tears in our eyes and all of that. And it just like, it, it, you know, it, we've talked about previously about how it's so difficult on something like Facebook because you have to really try hard. You have to put a lot of effort into bringing consciously as much embodiment to those interactions as you totally unconsciously do everywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's yep. kind of exhausting, um, especially when it's just text only. So it's, it's, I, I like, I kind of view it as like, I do a little bit of work here, which allows me to do some better work here. And yeah, there's another element sense. of it, Keith, and maybe you, you know, you and I can have a conversation. Well, we're all writers here, so I don't want to exclude anybody. But um, I've been in a uh, like probably a three-year-long writer's block, which is you know when I'm just like it's just me in a blank page, it's fucking painful. But hmm. for whatever reason, what I've noticed is that um, I get some of my most creative juice in second person 
when I'm rubbing up against someone else, when someone can say mm. something and I can respond to and I can kind of mm. go back and forth. That's where I've been the most generative over the last mm. years. So I think that's also feeding into how mm. I um, carry myself in places like Facebook. I'm actually sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Juice. yeah. <laughs> but it makes sense because it gives you, it helps define, you know, the, the blank page, as you said, can be infinitely blank. And so when there's a second person thing you're rubbing up against, right, you're obviously responding to specific queries and you're corralling certain parts of what it is you're trying to distill into the world. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's a process of, of, uh, of figuring out what it is that's relevant mm -hmm. of all the things that you could possibly be talking about. And so that makes mm -hmm. sense that that would be something that would be, mm -hmm. you know, a way that you could get into that generation of content for yourself. Mm -hmm. Interesting fellas. Well, hey, we're an hour and a half into it. We can keep going. I have uh, a little bit more time. It's uh, in 30 minutes. I have a Spanish lesson. So that's my, <laughs> my, and I need to stop before that to take a, go to the bathroom. So I have a little bit more time on my end, but um, I'm well, let's do this. Let's, let's first just see. Um, we've got a few people here in zoom with us. Cool. Um, if you guys want to talk to us, press the raise my hand button. I'll bring you on. Um, Alan had a question for Keith. Uh, Keith, I heard Junpo is retiring. He's such a great master and I love your books uh, with him. Do you see Mondo Zen is continuing without his direct involvement? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, Junpo is retiring in June, uh, sort of the end of June as it stands now. And um, the organization is in the process of figuring out exactly what it will look like without him. Um, but yeah, I very much think it will, it will continue. There's a number of Dharma holders that he's selected. Um, and I think the organization, which I'm not intimately involved with anymore, but I, I think they're in the process of figuring out who the next uh, abbot will be that would actually sort of steer the ship. Good for them to figure that out. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And it's a, it's a real bummer. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, let's see here. Uh, Alan, Jeremy, Steve, Tom, if you guys have any other questions, uh, let us know. Hit the raise my hand. Let me look real quick on to... You can, you can chat a question or you can pop on to whichever yeah, exactly. feels most comfortable. Yep. Um, trying to see if there's any... There's been people chatting on uh, YouTube. Uh, yeah, I see some chats. Uh, I, don't see any, I don't see any questions. No but, questions. Um, uh, but CG says that they've been uh, struggling with shadow material for the last few days. I hope that this conversation has been helpful to you um, at least a little bit. I also want to mention, if you go to um, integrallife.com slash practice, that's our um, ILP uh, domain and you'll find a number of um, really bite-sized practices and fuller practices that'll help you with right. this. Um, so I, I definitely invite you guys to check that out. Um, and I would also, also reflect to her that it's, you know, like it's okay if you're having a hard time with this, you know, like Amen. I'm, I don't want to give the impression that I'm like just doing great. You know, it's like <laughs> I give myself a lot of permission um, to feel trapped, to feel overwhelmed. Mm. Um, it's just that, you know, it, I'm cycling through a lot of things in a day and I have a lot of tools in my toolbox, which helps, but I don't want to give the impression that I'm over here just whistling Dixie and, you know, this is all part of my practice. It is all part of my practice, but it's, you know, there are, there are, there are I've had hard times. Yeah. There's a kindness we need to extend to ourselves, which unfortunately yes. that kindness sometimes gets trapped up in shadow material. Absolutely. Yeah. Gen Z just said, uh, is whistling Dixie a, a new, a new uh, <laughs> song that just dropped? <laughs> I, I couldn't even I couldn't even pick a, a young enough hip hop artist there, so I can't. 
that's really funny. <laughs> I will say for anyone uh, who's who's watching and is looking for some new art to enjoy, uh, Nine Inch Nails actually just released I need to look instrumental at that. Yeah. albums. That's good. That I've listened to it a couple of times. They're freaking gorgeous, and you know, there's there's an interesting awesome. story. So there's two albums. One is called Together. And one is called Locusts. And I feel like Trent is sort of giving us, you know, here, here are the two paths we can go down from here. Uh, I don't know whether it's a choice or it's like a simultaneity. Um, probably the mm. latter. Um, but they're absolutely gorgeous. And it's funny because cool. the, uh, the understanding is that, you know, Trent was working on a soundtrack for, I can't remember the name of it, but a Netflix movie. And then uh, the, the whole agreement, I guess, fell through. Fell apart, right. Yeah, right. Oh. Fell apart. But the premise of the movie was a woman who can't leave her house. Oh, it was that terrible Sandra Bullock yeah. uh, blindness thing or what, what, deafness or whatever the hell it was. It was I, didn't, I didn't watch it. I don't know much about it. But my understanding is the plot line is a woman who literally can't leave her house. So for Trent to actually take that material and repurpose it wow. as most That's, movies, it's, it's like... interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, every wow. Nine Inch Nails album is like, particularly Year Zero is just like perfect for what we're going through today. <laughs> Good way to inhabit your quarantine is to dance your your ass off to, to Nine Inch Nails. We have a, another question here. Oh, Alan. Yeah, he says, uh, it's so hard for integrally informed people to find wonderful outlets like this to connect and learn. It's often quite lonely, especially as a male. Are there any other forums or groups you can recommend other than integral life, um, such as Rebel Wisdom? Yeah, Rebel Wisdom's a, a, a good place of largely like-minded and like-hearted people um that's a good question i mean Buddhist geeks is obviously an amazing resource. yeah i would say um actually uh we've only announced this in, in in a few waves as we're just getting it set up but the buddhist geek sangha is going to be live it is live um and it hasn't been it's not open yet to everybody but it will be very soon and it's in a, a discord format setup where there's a lot of great conversation in there. And then also we have a practice calendar um, where there's gonna be open sits that are held by facilitators every day at multiple times a day, different social noting practices and just sitting, so different time zones. And uh, like I said, we just launched it to kind of get it tested and we have a hundred some people in there, but that's it's a really good community, especially if you're into meditation and practice. That's great. That's really great. And, you know, I just want to mention too, I've, been, I've actually been thinking about, um, you know, I'm, I'm racking my brains these days just saying, you know, how can integral life be in service right now, um, other than just sort of the content we release and all that. But, I, you know, what kind of community experiences, what kind of platforms? Um, I was even thinking of like, maybe we should be doing an integral happy hour, Zoom, open conversation every other day or every day or something like that where people even like, even like once a week it could be interesting yeah totally yeah. just just to unwind and not like have any agenda or any particular presentation but like let's just be together you know um and also you know again i invite all of you guys to to join us in, in shows like these um it's tremendously yeah. healing for and nourishing for me to actually hear from you um you guys are we, we just have such a, a wonderful incredible audience and um to whatever extent that this space can be um, useful for you and healing for you, uh, I hope you use it. That's that's an invitation to to participate with us during these shows. Mm -hmm. um, and then we hope to to bring some other shows online too. Like Keith, you and I have been, like I said earlier, we've been flirting around the idea of doing a, a regular show for a while. Maybe something sure. more more practice based. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I mean, I have a lot of tricks up my sleeve as far as you know contemplative practice and certainly somatic practices. So. Beautiful. 
Um, so we've got resources. We've got, you know, so much good spirit. Um, and we've got uh, just a lot of different possible directions that we can go with this. Um, but more than anything, we just want to make you guys know that, you know, you're supported and we're here for you every step of the way. Nice. Um, looks like Gellert says, what are your wildest dreams for after coronavirus? <laughs> Fucking global integration, man. I know. I, to be honest, I like, I only think about UBI. Whoa, man. That's like, I don't know. I mean, it's pretty simple. Like these days I'm, I'm just, I'd like to be able to go to the gym again at some point. <laughs> like that would be nice. Um, but other than that, I just want to be able to do the work I'm doing, connect with people like you all. That's, yeah. I want to be able to do that and have more ease around it. So I don't know. Ah, uh, you know what, to be honest, I want a chocolate filled croissant <laughs> and an espresso. <laughs> I've been, I've just naturally been watching more and more like food shows like Buzzfeed has a worth it, uh, uh, series where they try three different kinds of, uh, a type of food at different price points and it's a rabbit hole. Mm. And, I don't know if I recommend it because you can't go get any of the food, but yeah, I think maybe my hankering is some really delicious food. As for me, you know, a couple of things. Um, I want to see, we were talking about earlier, the reintegration of public and private spheres. That's sort mm -hmm. of a big meta, you know, um, thing I'd love to see start coming back together, particularly again for men who I think have been enduring the brunt of that dissociation for the last hundred years or so, uh, which isn't to say that women haven't had their version too. Obviously they have, but I think men's issues and men's health and men's mental health in particular is not discussed as often as we would like. So that's something I'd like to see. I would like to see a, a, a radical new economic system uh, that actually is capable of bringing the most depth to the most span, um, which is obviously much needed. Um, something that gets us away from, uh, you know, just asserting the profit motive anywhere we possibly can. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping we are able to make a couple healthy discernments around where the profit motive actually works, because there's plenty of places where it does, <laughs> and where it really works against our best interest and against our uh, public welfare. Um, that's why I often, you've probably heard me use this phrase in the past, I describe myself as a Maslow socialist. I basically say socialize the bottom rungs, capitalize the mid rungs and let God figure out the highest. Um, <laughs> libertarian know, at the top. Liber well, sure, spiritual, <laughs> enlightened libertarianism at the top. Um, but there's, there's any number of, of directions. I want to see a teal new deal, right? I want to see this healthy integration of, of sort of capitalism and socialism that a teal new deal would represent. Honestly, I want to see Integral hit this fucking tipping point that we've been talking about for like 20 goddamn years now. And I'm excited alongside all of the tension and pain and heartbreak and just like, guys, we're about to watch 200,000 at least Americans probably die in the next month or two, right? This is fucking painful, right? Mm -hmm. and, and again, we're only bracing ourselves for that impact right now. We'll, we'll get together again a month from now and sort of try to metabolize some of, some of what we've been through. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, in, in, in the, in, in the meantime, um, I totally lost my train of thought because I got so fucking <laughs> concerned I, about, about uh, the loss of life here. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm regardless of whatever color we pick in front of the word deal, I want there to be one. And, uh, my favorite so far is Jeremy Rifkin. And I think he, he does it in a way that, um, 
embraces all those pieces like where does the profit fit in how does the the business sector fit in how does the people fit in how the government fits in but it's just we need something like and so that's my wildest dreams like we need to get it going it's going to be crazy it's going to be a, a a tough ride maybe hopefully exhilarating at some point but that's my wildest dream but uh, yeah. well and i found my track i found my train again i got back on the train which was basically to say i'm hoping yeah. to see this integral thing actually start spilling over as a major influencer uh, yeah. uh, in our culture and our world more so than it has been so far. It's been pretty damn niche this entire time. But at the same time, you know, we've been using the language of life conditions for decades now. And it seems completely apparent to me that these life conditions have arrived. And when yeah. the life conditions arrive, it, things don't just spontaneously transform in the other quadrants. It's always the lower right quadrant that has to change first. Well, and for, for me, I mean, I, I'm in large agreement with both of you guys and where my attention goes which feels narrow, but practical, which is if this crisis has the power to fundamentally transform the way that we allow corporate interests to be in politics or not, mm-hmm. because if it doesn't, then it doesn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. My prediction will be that if the lobbying structures and laws that are in place don't change, then five years from now, things will be exactly the way they were two months ago. That, that's, oh, my, that's my prediction. Yeah. Because have, yep. the power brokers are writing all the laws and they have all, I mean, it's an overstatement, but so much of politics is, is in the back pocket of, of corporate power. And until that gets changed, it's all just farting in the wind. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. I enjoy farting in the wind, but not, not <laughs> that way. But you know, I, I think you're right, Keith. I, 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 part of this, maybe the silver lining uh, of this catastrophe and crisis we didn't ask for it will be that maybe it brings people more politically engaged to help change those structures and you know what i saw from the exit polls you know at least on the democratic side is that under 40 feels very different about what we need to do with the economy than over 40 so i feel like also there is that hope of just generational change Mm -hmm. like in in five years in the next presidential cycle like um it's going to be a different center of gravity with that. Yeah. I would much rather not have to wait five years because it, I, I saw a video pointing out the, the difference or the similarities in the 2008 crisis and one now with the economy. And it's just like, we're just repeating the same stuff, hoping, hoping that it will fix it, but it's not fixing it. It's only just making it worse and worse. Well, what's the author that wrote um, Black Swan, uh, Nassim, um, I can't Anti-fragility guy. Anti-fragility guy. Yeah. So he, he had, a, he was just interviewed on Monday by, business weekly or something like that but he said this is absolutely not a black swan event absolutely not that he he predicted this in 2006 that and he has all those reasons for it but the idea that this is some sort of uh, 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 an incredible anomaly that these companies deserve to be bailed out his whole point is that it's that anybody who's paying attention could have predicted what's happening right now and it's yeah. up to the corporate the corporations are responsible for their own fiscal well-being and their own insurance policies um, it's the policy they've always taken with individuals. They don't take that policy with, with corporations. It's pretty and, blatant. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and, fine. And maybe that's all getting blown up because right now, you know, with SVA loans, $10,000 to pretty much anybody that, that, you know, painters, artists, writers, you can get 10 grand right now from the government pretty much for doing about five minutes worth of paperwork online. It's really simple. You should look into it. Um, yep. There is money available to the little people in the way it hasn't been before. That is part of this $2 trillion buyout. It does require that you do a little bit of education and right? you mm-hmm. have to figure out how to do it, but it's not very hard. It's not like in the past where you basically have to be a fucking CPA to figure out how to get access to the money. 
So yeah. there, there, there's a shift right there already, which is which is good. I, I was very happy to see that the forms were very easy um, for it's. I was very surprised to see like the the EIDL, which is the one you're talking about with ten yeah. grand. Oh, that's my uh, little alarm. Your Spanish alarm. Yeah. My, well, my, I, I, feel, I feel complete. I can say that. Yeah, this has been fun. I mean, uh, this is great. Maybe we should, uh, we might have to do another bonus episode during the whole quarantine, especially if it goes, it's a two-monther. <laughs> well, yeah, then, Brian, then I, there'll I, be I, another I, check-in a month from now. I'll be like, forget everything I said. Yeah, <laughs> I recant everything. Vodka's <laughs> how I'm getting through. This is just going to be us finishing <laughs> bottles. <laughs> everything I said was bullshit. It's all going to end horribly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well gentlemen seriously this has been awesome this has been a great yeah it was really great to connect with you you two and yeah. uh yeah thank you. and nice to hear all the people on chat it's been quite lively today there have been a lot more people participating so it's thank you for everybody uh listening and chiming in yeah so just real quick a couple plugs um i want everyone who's watching this right now to also watch uh the show that rob and i recorded last monday we just very good on interval life today it's called Deeper Into the Great Release. It is um, one of the most, I think, exquisite overviews of where we are, where we've been, where we're going, largely looking at the lower right quadrant. You know, I've said before, I think that Rob brings a level of sophistication with the lower right that Ken, for example, brings with the upper left. And I'm just really grateful for his, for his input and his creativity around this. Um, I encourage you, all of you guys to check it out. It was a really, really great discussion. Um, also check out all the resources at Buddhist Geeks. Check out all of our previous shows of Inhabit. Look, we've got a whole lineup here. Forget Netflix. Forget and, and I've got books. I've got I've got I've got three books. Good time to do some reading. Books. KeithMartinSmith.com. Yep, and Keith's got a couple interviews on Integral Life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, uh, screw Netflix. Go to Integral Life. That's all you're going to need for your entertainment to get through this. Well, you can do both and. No, yeah. you can only do one. I'm not being <laughs> integral about this. Binge all the content. <laughs> In the meantime, guys, again, thank you so much. This has been, uh, yeah. it's been really thank you. gratifying. Yeah. yeah. All right. Great to be on. Until right. next time. Thank Take you, everyone. <laughs>